Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cyberware Podcast with me, your host, Sean Bethello. In this episode, we welcome our guest speaker, Nate Johnson. We will be talking about research and cybersecurity vulnerabilities. So let's hop right in. For our listeners out there, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is uh, Nate Johnson, as uh, Sherwin said in the introduction, and I am a penetration tester and also a co-host of another podcast over on YouTube of the Iron Geek cast um, and have been doing that for about two years and I've been in the industry for almost two years now doing pretty much anything from physical engagements all the way up to application security tests. Also, Nate, can you send us a link to your podcast? Yeah, for sure. Um, I've also have a couple of talks that are lined up uh, sadly, this year is kind of the bane for cons, um, but I've done a talk that is published um, of uh, some of the research that I've done uh, that we're kind of going to allude to today um, at uh, a local meetup in Kansas City called SecKC, um, and I will be presenting the same talk there with some added changes over the past couple of months. Um at uh, B-Sides KC, whenever that's going to happen, and uh, at ShowMeCon 2021. So you've definitely had a lot of experience presenting at venues like this. <laughs> a little bit. All right. All right. So let's dive right in. Um, so our first question of the day is, what are some of the common methods of research in the cybersecurity field? And also, what kind of research are you involved in currently? So... It really, the common methods kind of is you have to figure out what your scope is. So of what you're researching. So first you need to figure out a topic. So for instance, back while I was still in undergrad, I was doing research on uh, proximity card readers. So for like access control to different buildings, like like your uh, MAV card will open specific doors at specific times if you're a uh, student employee or stuff like that. And you need to get into like an IT building, you need to work in the library, you need to do all that. All that stuff is based off of this frequency. So first I had to figure out, okay, what is um our radio frequency identification or rfid so first figuring out the history of it figure out the broad scope of it and then taking it down to okay where where are the security flaws in it and that's where it kind of at least in that research had to i had to limit my scope down to a specific area and that specific area was the MyFair My 1K cards. And those are notoriously um, terrible cards to for security as they are unencrypted. And also um, you literally can buy a $20 um, gadget that will read the data off of the card and then you can write it off of the card. And then I also picked up another one just yesterday that will read um, hid access cards, which is another protocol. Um, but you can really dive deep into any one of them. So my focus was actually building a card reader using open source tools um, for reading and writing 
uh, of my fair 1k cards and there's a lot of different stuff that I could have done there. I could have gone into even the ultra high frequency. I could have gone into the high frequency stuff, but you also have to be, when you're researching, you have to kind of do it on a budget sometimes, unless you have infinite money, which is, would be awesome. If I had infinite money, I would hit all of those things, but you, I was doing all of this out of my own pocket. So you kind of have to scope in down to what are you actually able to prove and what are you actually able to apply to your research. Um, and I, I take, took that from even just with the physical stuff. Sometimes it's just taking it apart. Like, and this goes the same with software. You kind of have to take everything apart down to its bare essentials. What's the bare functionality of it? So I haven't, and with RFID, it's an antenna with web applications or web frameworks. It's what are the base API protocols that you're going to be looking at? What are the base things that are built out in an application framework? So things of that nature. Right. And that's really, uh, you know, exciting and uh, very deep uh, research that you have going on there. So is RFID um, similar to NFC or are they both starkly different? So they're actually the same. So they're the same, but different. It's kind of that meme. RFID is over three separate bands. You have low frequency, high frequency, and ultra high frequency. Low frequency is anything up to about 125 kilohertz. And that's just the rate of frequency of a radio wave. Um, High frequency is anything above that up to about 13.5 megahertz, which is where your uh, MAV cards are going to be broadcasting. Or actually with the MAV cards, it's actually kind of funny. If you put a flashlight behind it, you can see uh, behind the uh, swipe bar in the MAV card. I don't know if they've changed it since I've been there. But you can, if you shine a flashlight directly behind it and you're looking at the face of it, you can see a low frequency antenna and a high frequency antenna inside of it because the campus has uh, two different kinds of readers uh, for different buildings. And I'm sure you really played around with uh, the MAV card, especially for, you know, as far as identity cards go. Yeah, it it was a it's a good it's a good spot to kind of start. I mean, I had something that was tangible that I could see and I could just I didn't want to break my math card because otherwise I would not be able to get into my office. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a bad day um, with NFC. It lies in that high frequency range, that same 13.5 six uh megahertz range so you could technically take an antenna and if you're just grabbing the raw data back or that raw signal and saving that signal to uh some sort of raw binary file um you could then create a clone of that nfc card so in when i was in uh europe for studying uh abroad in the netherlands the netherlands is full of NFC, RFID um, kind of things. Um, the buses and the uh, trains, they all had one system where you had a preloaded card with a certain amount of dollars on it that had a RFID chip inside them. 
and even all of the payment stuff at the banks over in Europe, it's all the payment cards, so like your debit card um, and that stuff, all of that was equipped with NFC because every store that you went to had NFC enabled. Every bar, every restaurant, every like grocery store had NFC enabled, which was awesome for uh, accessibility for some people. But for me, it kind of freaked me out a little bit because I knew the underlying technology there. Right. And there's always that that fine line between con- convenience and security that people often forget and will willingly trade sometimes. Yeah. Just to answer the second part of that question of what research I'm involved in right now, sure. um, I'm really trying to keep digging deeper and deeper into um, d- Docker and also and trying to use it as not so much of there's vulnerabilities present there it's vulnerable configurations so seeing what's out in the open what's out on the clear net what's out on the internet that will actually be able to be execute or exploitable and um that eventually turned into my talk where i found a bunch of different uh, crypto mining botnets but i won't go too deep into that but that's the research that i'm currently working on and then i also dabble back and forth into the physical uh, bypass and physical entry and physical security stuff and which includes the uh, rfid stuff as well and from what i've understood especially from reading your your you know your work description on, on linkedin Mm-hmm. Uh, that that kind of revolves around your area of focus at, at work, presumably, correct? It it depends. When you're working in art as a penetration tester, you're gonna find stuff that you haven't seen, and sometimes, and I'm a fairly young person in the industry. Some of the stuff is older than I am. <laughs> that I'll try to that I'll be scanning against or trying to be hacking against um and other times you're going to find companies that have a more mature software development life cycle that are going to have the technologies like docker node.js um and they'll be moving away and even sometime some things such as like go or they might be an apple shop or something like that but nine times out of 10, you're going to be looking at stuff that you're going to have seen when you were, in my case, um, in elementary school, uh, especially with the more, with the larger the company, the more you're going to see more of those legacy systems. So it's always nice to see when you're doing kind of bleeding edge research that you find that inside of an engagement and you, you just get a little little tingle of like oh here we go let's go let's go do this <laughs> real quick and uh on to our second question how will ongoing research benefit emerging professionals and our students and faculty kind of like uh, a segue into a little bit of a motivation for students and even faculty members to continue ongoing research and security yeah and and to security especially the research field is where a lot of the like, like, let's take uh, two years ago, um, Spectre Meltdown. That was a research project by 
a group of faculty and a group of students across multiple universities that got onto the national news, at least here in the States. And it because it wrecked Intel's reputation on the security of their chips, like the actual hardware, not so much any of the software or anything like that, but it went down to the microcode and to the actual, here's how the process is built from the ground up. This adder does this, this electrode goes that way kind of stuff. And that will benefit them going into their careers. If it's a faculty member, that's going to get them to a point of like, you're going to be able to teach. How did you do this? How did you go from having an Intel processor or an AMD processor, which they later found out was vulnerable to this spectrum meltdown attacks as well? Um, how do you go from this to, hey, I just found this awesome exploit. As a faculty, I would see it as you're able to teach, here's where I failed. I failed so many different times to get it right until I got it right. It just made it that much sweeter. And as for students that are wanting to go into security, the quote that we always get handed, whether or not you're going to be an analyst or a penetration tester, a red team, blue team, or um, in some cases, purple team, the quote that got thrown around a lot was a hacker only needs to be right once and a blue teamer has to be right all the time. And a buddy of mine now uh, presented a talk um, out in Minneapolis uh, at the Minnesota Security Summit back in 2017. He had his whole talk based around this quote, which he then said, it's wrong. And the reason it's wrong is that a hacker has to try a hundred different things before he gets it right. As a blue teamer, you should be able to see every single try that he is making. You should have the vision to see that. And as you're doing your research and you're looking into different tools, you're looking into different scripts, and it, it, it's all research. If you're trying to just even write a script in Python to do packet captures on um, edge routers or something like that, that's research. You're trying to figure out how do I get from A to B? What works? What doesn't? How can I improve it? And hacking is the same way. You, how do I get a reverse shell onto this edge router? It's this exact same kind of cat and mouse game. You're, we're both trying to use computers to do something that they're kind of not supposed to do normally. And we've kind of written these different tools that have been researched and we're trying to get a better vision of what our security is or what these endpoints are. Yeah, no, definitely. I can relate as a blue team professional or emerging professional in the industry. Uh, visibility and um, you know tracking is one of the most key concerns that we have um, in blue team. Yeah. And, and definitely, you know, in regards to even in regards to research, I know a lot of uh, candidates during the hiring process. Um, it's it's one of those things that come up and can really make uh, a person stand out to uh, a recruiter. Yeah, it, one thing I'll also throw out there is um, build a lab environment for yourself. Um, whether or not you're going red team or blue team, if you have a lab environment, not only are you going to know how to build it 
you can work on securing it. You can work on hacking it. You can deploy things. If you build it correctly, you can deploy things within that network that are otherwise malicious and then figure out, well, how do I stop it? Like if you get a sample of like, I think WannaCry is still readily available to download now to kind of for lab purposes, if you look hard enough, like let's say you wanted to try that, like research, how would you defend against this? Or what would you modify in the payload structure, the attack structure to get it past the protections that you just put in place? So that's where that research comes into play there. And trust me, you're going to be continually needing to do that to stay on top of stuff once you get out into the industry, blue team and red team. Right. And this is, yeah, pivotal knowledge. Thanks. Thanks for your insights on that. Um, yeah. And so, uh, I don't know if you've been reading about in the news and this, this might be just like a slight, a slight deviation from, uh, the questions. Uh, but I, have you heard anything about the latest, you know, UFO sightings that was released by the Pentagon <laughs> question popped in my head. What kind of security practices do you think alien species would have? If any, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I thought this as a joke and then I started to like really think about it afterwards after I, I i saw one video that the or the pentagon video that was released um and when i was looking at it i thought well that could be a weather balloon it could be doctored i mean thermal camera images are it's it's black and white it could be easily doctored blah 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 blah, blah. but then you brought up the second question so whether or not that thing is doctored whether or not it's real or it's a weather balloon that just got draped and it just started getting pulled by a crosswind or whatever i have no idea i'm not a aeronautical engineer or any sort of atc that would understand that but what i would think of in terms of like security practices um if they have been here, they're doing a real good job at obfuscating and also um, remaining undiscovered, which is something that you kind of have to do when you're in a security practice on, on both sides. If I'm able to go to Shodan as an attacker, uh, and Shodan is a database of basically the entire visible internet that they can see, they scan the internet daily, um, if I'm able to see all of your edge endpoints that go out to the external internet and have port numbers, versions of software that you're running, and I don't have to touch your network with any sort of network scan, that's gold for me because you're not going to see me coming. It's the same thing with like aliens. Like we don't detect them normally. So how do we know that they're even there? How do you expect an attacker or some ufo i guess in this case and i guess that's that's pivotal to your industry as well right camouflage and yeah. uh, trying to when you're trying to get in and break past systems especially physical systems you need to try and blend in with a regular crowd yeah and even with the physical stuff and when it's interesting that you brought that up there's not a whole lot of blending in that you have to do um i'm a fairly tall individual um and I also have a pretty scraggly beard. Um, and I have gotten into some very high profile buildings in some very high profile areas. Um, 
that you wouldn't expect a guy like me to be able to get through. Um, and most of the time it's, you kind of have to play a part, but you're also trying to play something that you know that you can play. Um, so for instance, like I'm not going to go in there thinking that I'm this hotshot entrepreneur or something like that. Cause I've never owned a business. I've never had a great marketing idea. I'm going to go in as like a maintenance guy. Like I used to do maintenance back in high school. So I know what to look for. I know what I need to say to get them to let me in if I'm a maintenance guy. So I just walk in looking like a weird third party contractor that's here for maintenance for the building or whatever and just walk right in. So you kind of hide in plain sight, but you're also different enough that they are okay with knowing that you're there because they believe that you're the maintenance guy that someone sent you. Believability is everything. Yes. So it's not so much fitting in. If you want to fit in and just look like a normal coworker and you can do that, great. But if and you've got the time to do that. But for me, my engagements have always been kind of like smash and grab. So like run in, go grab your thing, take a couple pictures, grab a file or whatever the objective is, or put a device on the network, take an end map, run back out, meet with the client. Um, so that it really depends on what your scope is as well so if you've got time definitely try and blend in especially if you um get uh, the ability to be there on like weeks on end or even be hired at the company as like an accountant or something of course and we definitely uh you know for the purpose of the listeners out there we're not you know recommending something illegal it's definitely got to be oh, very yeah. you know under legal or directed response yeah don't hack stuff that you do not have express written consent to do <laughs> Right. So on to our next question. What what has been an interesting milestone in your research? I think it was when I got to be able to speak on it in a public setting and present to it to a bunch of professionals that have been in the industry much, much longer than I have um, and have them come up to me afterwards and actually start asking me questions. That was a really great milestone. Um, in terms of at least presenting on the research um, in, in other stuff too, in terms of doing the actual research, when you build something to succeed what or achieve what your research goal is. Um, so I wrote a tool to track um, and download stuff from Shodan to act and parse out all the Docker container stuff so I could have a firm list of where th this device is at, what is it running, all this other stuff, and actually be able to easily track botnets that way. And then back to the RFID stuff, I built, and I still have it here somewhere, I built an Arduino board that will read and write uh, my fair 1k cards and it's just like five wires and arduino board the software and then an antenna that those are great milestones when you get to build something like you have something tangible that came out of this research and sometimes even just a theoretical paper that gets published somewhere that would also be one that i would say is a great milestone right academic research is always um, a, a great you know milestone in anyone's career I'm trying to do that right now, uh, writing a paper on technical reporting and cybersecurity and tr trying to assist uh, Dr. Velsos, who was our first guest speaker. One of the foreseeable goals that I, I, I would want to pursue 
is uh, to stand amongst a crowd and, and give a presentation on, on information security topics. Um, you know, I, I understand that it's pretty nerve wracking, especially when you're when you're standing out there presenting and you, you know for a fact that there are already established uh, professionals from the industry sitting in that crowd. And they're in your mind, you're probably like, oh, they're judging me and, you know, they're critical. So I wonder how that experience was for you. There's a couple of different things that you kind of brought up there, and that's um, imposter syndrome, which we all have. I know people that have been in the industry for decades that still have imposter syndrome. And uh, what, what is imposter syndrome? It's imposter syndrome is when you feel like you're not supposed to be in a certain situation. So when it pertains to like security or like hacking, imposter syndrome is like, I'm not an actual hacker. Like I don't write like these awesome CVEs. I don't build these tools like um, Empire or um, Covenant or anything like that. Um, but I just use them. Well, in an essence, yes, you are an hack a hacker. You can still build tools like you're not done and, and when you're going up and speaking especially in front of people that you know may or may not have more experience than you do that imposter syndrome kind of eggs on um, but at the same time you might have found something that someone that's been in the industry for two decades three decades or whatever has never seen before because it came out last year so you're not only giving people that might have experience a new thing that they have to research, but you're also giving newcomers like uh, you and myself a new way to look at how the whole landscape of security in general um, or even or that specific sector. Like for me, it was cloud hosting because Docker is like the the way to do cloud hosting right now. Even when you're just getting up there and depending on whatever scenario it is, my biggest thing is that that's helped me is if you practice it at least like download like OBS or something and you have a time slot. So for instance, I have like a 20 minute time slot and one to do the talk and I have a 45 minute time slot to do it. Do the talk in 20 minutes, do the talk in 45 minutes and record each of those and then play back and see where you can improve on. And the more you do that and the more comfortable that you'll get with your material that you wrote and understanding it and also owning that, you're going to be, it's going to be way easier when you go in and just step up to the mic and just start going. And you're not going to have any of the, you'll have a little bit of the anxiety because, you know, things, mics go bad, like, something falls from the ceiling like you're gonna have those thoughts but it'll go so much smoother for you and you won't be as anxious if you kind of practice that beforehand right that's thanks yeah that's great advice especially going ahead um i'll definitely try to put that to practice right so for our final two questions um uh, you're an alumni from msu correct yep um what are some of the key courses and learning experiences that you, you know, you had uh, over your time here? And also what kind of suggestions and tips do you have for, for oncoming uh, professionals, for essentially students that are trying to pursue their careers in the cybersecurity field? So the classes that I took were IT350 uh, with Brad Ammerman, which you had as a guest on here in a previous episode. And then I also took 
as many classes from Dr. V as I could. Um, I think I took three from him, which were 450, I think 550 as well, because I was doing a combined master's program, which I eventually stopped because I wanted to start working. And then I took an individual study with him as well, which isn't so much security oriented. You can kind of do that with any of the uh, professors that are at uh, MSU, at least in the IT field. And you can probably find something really cool no matter what. So those were kind of the key courses that helped me get a foothold. And then it's a lot of because those first ones give you like that foundation, IT350, IT450, like you, 350, you know the concepts, you know the theory behind it. Brad will tell you go and work on Cali in your own, or spin up a Cali box, work on uh, CTFs in your own time. And then there's also like great groups like ISSO, um, which I had the privilege of being VP of while I was there. Um, and like just hanging out and being in that space really helped and being around people that are going to push you to do stuff like either that's professors or students to push you to do research or to go to that next level is going to at least for me that really helped and what I needed to do for uh, my professional career and it really established a footing when I said hey like I've done xyz i've been a part of this group i've been my gpa is like whatever it's my gpa is whatever i've gone to this convention i've spoken at this i've done work for the community or security community with the podcast like all of that stuff right and sometimes it's that experience that truly matters and not really uh, gpa especially in information security that experience is is definitely relevant and very important yeah, if you if you can sit down and build and configure, and this is, is not like an all around like you need to know this, but if you can sit down, spin up a box that is vulnerable to let's say Heartbleed, and show me how to exploit it and report and give me a full report on how you did it with the methodology with code snippets, um, with within a specific time frame like let's say a week. Yeah, you're good for a pen tester position or uh, analyst position. Like if you're able to do that kind of stuff and actually do the analysis and also know what you're doing and also being able to explain that, you're going to be good to go. Yeah, the, the key word is ex- explaining, right? You want to be good in, in trying to explain it so that even the average Joe can understand. Right. And that comes with how you build your reports too. You have the executive summary, then you have, here's all the technical jargon. Lots of technical jargon. Lots of technical jargon. (laughs) All right. Well, yeah. Thank you, Nate, for being a guest on the show and for the information and, you know, for making the episode really interesting. And to our list, yeah. And to our listeners out there at MSU and beyond, we definitely do want to know your thoughts. Send us some feedback at itsecurity at mnsu.edu or fill out the survey at link.mnsu.edu slash cyberawarefeedback.